Chapter 3, The Theory of Unequal Exchange Introduction As it has been explained in the previous chapter, it was the internal contradictions of the capitalist mode of production which led to the recurring and increasingly serious crises of overproduction during the last half of the 19th century. The contradiction between productive forces and conditions of production showed itself as a disproportion between production and consumption, leading to overproduction. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. However, the contradiction changed its character around the turn of the century. Capitalism showed a new international mode of accumulation which was reflected by a growing domestic market in Western Europe and the United States. The basis of this development was an intensified exploitation of the colonies and other poor countries. One country's exploitation of the other became a capitalist aspect of increasing importance, an aspect which is a characteristic of capitalism today. An analysis of today's capitalist mode of accumulation must therefore be based on a global point of view. Today's capitalism is global and can therefore only be understood by means of a global analysis. Only then can we understand and explain the very different manifestations of capitalism in the rich and the poor countries. Danish welfare capitalism can only be understood through its connection with the exploitation of the third world by the imperialist countries. This global analysis of capitalism must be based on economic facts, because imperialism, which is the international form of the capitalist mode of production, is first and foremost an economic phenomenon characterized by the transfer of value from exploited countries to exploiting countries. The political, social, and cultural conditions are consequences of the imperialist economy. Other aspects are of course retroactive on the economy, but the economic forces are fundamental. Thus imperialism is not a policy which the imperialist countries can choose to pursue or to avoid. Ultimately, imperialist policy is a consequence of imperialist economy. An understanding of the political tendencies in the imperialist world must therefore be based on an understanding of its economic functions. Marx himself never found time to work out a theory of the capitalist world market and international trade, even though it was part of his plan for the description of capitalism and capital. Since Marx, various people have dealt with imperialism but have not been able to work out a theory applying to the world market. A Marxist theory of this phenomenon was not framed until the appearance of Argyre Emanuel's theory of unequal exchange. In this theory Emanuel displays the mechanisms by means of which value is transferred from one country to another. His theory of unequal exchange is based on Marx's interpretation of the law of value. Therefore, we shall summarize below the part of Marx's theory which is necessary for understanding the theory of unequal exchange. The Capitalist Mode of Accumulation The commodities the value of the commodity is a social relation. Marx starts his analysis of the capitalist mode of accumulation from an analysis of the commodity. A commodity has two properties, use value and exchange value. 
The use value means that the commodity can satisfy physical or psychical human wants. The exchange value is the quantitative relation in which various use values are exchanged. A commodity is a product of human labor made by an independent producer with the intention of exchanging it. Therefore, not all products of labor are commodities. If the product is exclusively made for the producer himself and is thus not exchanged, then it is no commodity since it is only a use value and no exchange value. Commodity production being production with a view to exchange, a product is considered a commodity because of its social properties, not because of its physical characteristics. Whether an object is a commodity cannot be definitely determined until it is put on the market to be exchanged. The exchange relation between different commodities varies according to the circumstances under which the exchange occurs. It may, for instance, vary with time and place. Commodity exchange may thus immediately appear to be rather accidental. However, this is not the case. The exchange value actually does reflect the common character of the commodities, the fact that they are products of human labor. The exchange value is a manifestation of the value which the commodity has by virtue of being a product of human labor. What is actually compared at the commodity exchange is not the exchange value itself, but the human labor inherent in the commodity. Thus commodity exchange is not a relation between objects or things. A commodity exchange reflects human relations between producers, i.e. social relations. This exchange of values appears as a relation between things, but it is a social relation. Engels writes, political economy begins with commodities, with the moment when products are exchanged either by individuals or by primitive communities. The product being exchanged is a commodity. But it is a commodity only because of the thing, the product being linked with a relation between two persons or communities, the relation between producer and consumer, who at this stage are no longer united in the same person. Here is at once an example of a peculiar fact, which pervades the whole of economics and has produced serious confusion in the minds of bourgeois economists. Economics is not concerned with things, but with relations between persons. And in the final analysis between classes, these relations, however, are always bound to things and appear as things. To the dual character of the commodity corresponds a dual character of the labor. Use value is based on actual labor, carpenting, forging, weaving, etc., the use value and the actual labor being of a qualitative nature. Exchange value is based on abstract labor on the consumption of human labor power, which is of a quantitative nature. Thus abstract labor forms the basis of the value of the commodity which is compared to the value of other commodities when exchanged. Commodity production generally defined. Commodity production proper requires such a development of the social division of labor that an exchange of products is necessary. The individual producer expects that there is a social need for the produced use values. A commodity is thus a product of human labor, produced with the intention of being exchanged with other products of human labor. But it is not until the product is placed on the market that it can be seen whether the labor which was consumed in the production can be realized, i.e. whether it has a use value to other people. So, society must consider the produced commodity to be necessary. There must be either immediately after the production or sometime in the future a market able to buy it, otherwise the labor consumed has been wasted, from a social point of view, without creating any value. Simple Commodity Production The producer owns his own means of production.
the commodity is exchanged at its own value. The social phenomenon which Marx calls simple commodity production belongs to a certain historical period before capitalism. The production of commodities is much older than capitalism. Commodity production existed in the slave society as well as in the feudal society. Early commodity production was characterized by the producer owning his own means of production and his products. The producer, for instance a farmer or an artisan, thus acted alone in the production. At that time the exploitation of other people through wage labor was not yet pronounced. Labor power was not yet a commodity. In a society with simple commodity production, there is a tendency towards the commodities being exchanged at their value. This means that they are exchanged in accordance with the amount of abstract human labor contained in their production within the socially necessary labor time, i.e. within the production time required under normal conditions, with average degree of skill and intensity, and with the technology normally used in the society in question. And, finally, society must regard the product as a necessity. Commodity Production Under Developed Capitalism Producer and Means of Production Separated Commodities are exchanged at the prices of production. In the case of simple commodity production, the producer owns his own means of production. In the case of developed capitalism, the producer owns neither the means of production nor the product. Thus the proletariat and the bourgeoisie tome into existence. The arrival of these classes is discussed shortly below. Primitive Accumulation Marx and Engels write in the Manifesto of the Communist Party, we see then, the means of production and of exchange, on whose foundation the bourgeoisie built itself up, were generated in feudal society. At a certain stage in the development of these means of production and of exchange, the conditions under which feudal society produced and exchanged, the feudal organization of agriculture and manufacturing industry, in one word, the feudal relations of property became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces, they became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder, they were burst asunder. The disintegration of feudalism and the creation of the prerequisites of the capitalist mode of production marks calls primitive accumulation primitive because the birth of capitalism cannot be explained by the law of accumulation of the capitalist mode of production itself. The accumulation of the values which constituted the primitive capital was not a result of capitalist exploitation, wage labor, but a result of actual violence and open theft. The creation of the proletariat was not a consequence of capitalism, but a consequence of the historical background of capitalism, of its basis. In the so-called primitive accumulation, Marx goes thoroughly into the question of what primitive accumulation contains. He describes it as the process creating the basic conditions of capitalist production, on the one pole the creation of free propertyless laborers unencumbered with the means of production. On the other pole the creation of the owners of money, means of production and means of subsistence, whose only aim it is to increase the sum of value they possess or, in short, the capitalists. The original capitals were mostly a result of the exploitation of the colonial areas. Marx writes, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warrant for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief momenta of primitive accumulation. 
On their heels treads the commercial war of the European nations, with the globe for a theater. The different momenta of primitive accumulation distribute themselves now, more or less in chronological order, particularly over Spain, Portugal, Holland, France, and England. In England, at the end of the 17th century, they arrive at a systematical combination, embracing the colonies, the national debt, the modern mode of taxation, and the protectionist system. These methods depend in part on brute force, e.g., the colonial system. But they all employ the power of the state, the concentrated and organized force of society, to hasten, hothouse fashion, the process of transformation of the feudal mode of production into the capitalist mode, and to shorten the transition. Force is the midwife of every old society pregnant with a new one. It is itself an economic power. As the primitive accumulation and the exploitation of the colonial areas were a condition of the breakthrough of capitalism, the creation of a proletariat was also a necessity. That means the existence of a class of free laborers, free in a double sense. Firstly, they must be able to sell their labor power freely and not as slaves or bondsmen be tied to a certain production. Secondly, they must be free from any rights of property to the means of production, and not work as the peasant or the artisan with their own means of production. They are to be free and idle on the market and thus forced to take part in the capitalist production as wage laborers to secure their subsistence. And so two basic classes arise under capitalism, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the capitalists with the capital, hence with the means of production, and the proletariat, deprived of this means of production with only its labor power to offer. Under capitalism, labor power has thus also become a commodity. Labor power, its value and price. In several ways, labor power is not a common commodity. Its price, wages, is not fixed by economic laws to the same extent as the price of other commodities. Unlike the prices of other commodities, wages are fixed primarily by the class struggle in society. However, it is not only the class struggle which determines wages. Thus Marx distinguished between two elements in the case of the determination of the value of labor power. Partly the physical reproduction costs of labor power and partly what he describes as the historical and moral element. The reproduction costs of labor power means the price of the commodities which are necessary if the worker and the working class as a whole is to continue his work, his subsistence, and reproduction. It is a question of basic food, clothing, and housing. If the laborer is only paid a sum which covers the physical reproduction costs, it is described as subsistence wages. All attempts to determine the price of labor power from the physical reproduction costs alone have hitherto failed. For wages to be determined by those circumstances, a free labor market would be necessary, and such a free market never existed, generally speaking, except perhaps for a short while immediately after the establishment of the capitalist system. The complex rules and regulations of the preceding feudal system, and the class struggle that was to follow, left very little room for any free labor market. Besides the prices of the purely physically determined means of subsistence, the value of the labor power is determined by the historical and moral element. Marx says, on the other hand, the number and extent of his so-called necessary wants, as also the modes of satisfying them, are themselves the product of historical development, and depend therefore to a great extent on the degree of civilization of a country, more particularly on the conditions under which, and consequently on the habits and degree of comfort in which, the class of free laborers has been formed.
In contradistinction, therefore, to the case of other commodities, there enters into the determination of the value of labor power a historical and moral element. Nevertheless, in a given country, at a given period, the average quantity of the means of subsistence necessary for the laborer is practically known. The factors which determine the value and price of labor power, namely the class struggle and the reproduction costs, interact during the course of development. In the same way, a dialectic relationship exists between the value of labor power and the price of labor power, i. e. wages. The value of labor power is thus in itself indirectly determined by the wages. Even though the value also determines the wages, the wages retroact on the value, as the working class gets the possibility of including more commodities in its reproduction when it obtains higher wages through the class struggle. When the higher wages have existed for some time, this price of labor power becomes equivalent to the value of labor power. Thus the historical and moral element, which means the class struggle and its entire historical and economic basis, determines to a high degree the wage level under capitalism. However, the historical and moral element is also influenced by earlier wage levels. If we assume that wages fluctuate around the value of labor power, this means that the value of labor power differs throughout the world. Where comparatively high wages are paid, the value of labor power is at a comparatively high level. Conversely, the value of labor power is at a comparatively low level where comparatively low wages are paid. Consequently, the value of labor power is at a high level in the wealthy imperialist countries and at a low level in the exploited countries in the third world. Throughout a long historical period, a high wage level in the rich countries has resulted in a high level of reproduction costs. Reproduction costs have in these countries included many consumer goods of various kinds and are consequently an expression of a high value. The low wage level in the third world means reproduction costs at a low level and thus it reflects a low value. The reproduction costs in the third world include mainly physical subsistence goods. If we define the value of labor power in this strictly theoretic way from a national point of view, it is because it is a fact that the price level of the commodity labor power differs very much in the world. Therefore, there is no moral evaluation contained in the concept of value in this connection. It is a strictly economic definition. That labor power is paid according to its value has nothing to do with fairness. Of course, the use value of labor power, the ability to create value, is not influenced by these differences in the value of the actual labor power. Labor performed with the same qualifications is equally productive no matter where the labor is performed and no matter what value the actual labor power has. Why should Docker in Esbjerg in Denmark create more value than a Docker in Bombay in India just because the Danish Docker's wages are 50 times higher? With the same qualifications and the same intensity, the value of their work must be the same no matter what the value of their labor power might be. Thus the size of the wages is dependent on the relative strength between the classes and on the position of the country in the world. Consequently, the market for labor power differs from the normal commodity market. There are norms, rules, laws, and union regulations as to the length of the working day, working conditions, overtime, minimum wages, peace rates, etc. There are comparatively fixed limits to the variability of wages within one country. These limits do not immediately reflect economic laws, but rather political conditions. 
the internationally different course of the class struggle has created considerable differences in wages internationally. However, within the individual country, particularly the imperialist countries, there is a tendency towards an equalization of the wage level. This national tendency towards equalization is partly due to the comparatively high degree of labor mobility within the countries and partly to political interventions. A similar tendency cannot be seen internationally. On the contrary, the differences in wages between the imperialist countries and the exploited countries have increased. The price for the commodity labor power has not followed the general tendency towards the setting of one world market price. Wages vary relatively little within a given period, but very much from place to place. There are subsistence wages in the third world and comparatively high wages in the imperialist countries. On the other hand, the price of most commodities varies enormously from time to time, but comparatively little from place to place in the world. For example, the price of topper or wheat may vary considerably from month to month or even from day to day, but geographically the price varies only little. At a specified time, there is a world market price. The opposite applies in the cause of wages. Emmanuel writes, from remotest antiquity to the beginning of the 19th century, the wage has, in real terms, hardly varied in any country, from the beginning of the 19th century up to the present it has, in certain countries, moved slowly and steadily upwards. Such a constancy in certain periods or certain countries, such an evenness and duration of a one-dimensional movement in certain other periods and other countries, are contrary to the endogenous economic determinations which are plastic and multiform. An extra-economic institution vector alone can generate them. At any rate, on the international plane, the multiplicity of wage rates is inconsistent with the existence of a market since the essential function of the market is precisely to secure one price for each item. Now in the case of wages, this disparity continues without the slightest attenuation, even when, here or there and in certain epochs, the labor factor enjoys a relatively important mobility. Neither the great immigration of Europeans into the United States during the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, nor the contemporary considerable immigration of North Africans, Portuguese, Greeks, etc., into the developed countries of Western Europe after the last war have given rise to the slightest tendency towards the equalization of wages between the countries of origin and the host countries. There is no relevance between the conjunctural fluctuations of employment in different countries and the comparative rates of wages in these same countries. For example, during the 1929-34 crisis, unemployment in the United States was 36. 47% of the active population against 13.42% in France and only 7% in Italy. Yet the American wage remained, during the worst of the crisis, two to three times that in France and three to four times that in Italy. We can conclude that the determination of wages is more a political than an economic process. Its variations reflect the fluctuations of the relations of power between social classes. This extra-economic institutional determination makes possible a lasting gap between the price and value of labor power. However, these two magnitudes continue to be connected to each other in a dialectical interaction. A wage greater than the value of labor power, if it prevails for a long time, ends by driving upwards this value itself, since the extra consumption which it allows ends by being transformed into vital needs, what Marx calls a second nature, and, hence, 
by being incorporated into the real cost of reproduction of the labor force. Wage labor must be regarded as it is, a social relation in which classes fight for their interests I. E. The struggle for the division of the social product into wages to the laborers and profit to the capitalists. Thus wages constitute a part of the social product and their size reflects the relative strength between the classes and the economic basis on which the class struggle takes place. Productivity and Wages One of the most popular explanations of the international differences in wages is that they are based on corresponding differences in productivity. There are even people who claim that the workers in the developed, imperialist countries, because of their high degree of productivity, are more exploited than the proletariat in the third world. Their argumentation can be summed up as follows, generally, the rate of productivity in the imperialist countries is much higher than in the third world. This high rate of productivity results in a fall in the value of the commodities which form part of the laborer's consumption. Consequently, the necessary labor time decreases I. E. The time required for the production of the commodities necessary for the reproduction of labor power in proportion to the surplus labor. The high wages which can buy many commodities do not reflect a higher value but only a higher rate of productivity. The increasing wages have not even been able to keep pace with the increasing productivity. Surplus labor accounts for an increasing part of the working day in proportion to the necessary labor. Thus the working class in the imperialist countries enjoys an increasing standard of living while it is exploited more and more at the same time. However, in the third world the rate of productivity is lower for the products included in the consumption of the working class. This means that the necessary labor time accounts for a larger part of the total labor time than in the imperialist countries. Thus, in spite of the wretched conditions, the labor power in the third world is less exploited than the labor power in the imperialist countries. This is due to the difference in the rate of productivity in the world. A high rate of productivity means high wages, a low rate of productivity means low wages. In this chapter we shall deal with the above assertion from a theoretic point of view. In chapter 4 we shall deal with it empirically. A Marxist definition of productivity must strictly distinguish productivity from the terms intensity and profitability. These three terms are often mixed up. The bourgeois economists mostly focus on output per laborer measured by the quantity of commodities produced or by the quantity of profit created. Whether an increased output per laborer is due to increased price on the products, new more efficient technology or harder wear of the labor power is not so important to them. Also, many Marxists confuse intensity, the rate of wearing out the labor power, and productivity, the efficiency of the machines. By defining productivity as number of produced commodities per unit of time, they are unable to distinguish between the results of new technology or of harder wear of the labor power. To make it possible to distinguish the influence of the different components, we will define the terms as follows. Profitability is the proportion between the market price and the price of production of a given commodity. An increasing market price or a decreasing price of production results in higher profitability. Intensity is the rate of consumption of the labor power. Higher intensity means faster wearing out of the laborers and more produced commodities per unit of time by the same means of production. The exploitation of women workers in South Korea is an example of high intensity and fast wearing out of labor power. 
Productivity is determined by the efficiency of the technological facilities and by the organization of the production. Improving the technology and or the organization, keeping intensity the same, results in a production of more commodities per unit of time. Both increased intensity and increased productivity results in creation of more use value per unit of time. But only increased intensity creates more value per unit of time. Increased productivity just means the production of a greater quantity of commodities containing the same value. In his analysis of peace rates and peace payment, Marx shows how the apparent connection between productivity and wages is false, since peace rates are a concealed form of time wages. If the peace rate for one unit in a certain enterprise is for example $4 and the average wage for the labor in question is $40 per day, the peace rate only reflects that the capitalist has calculated that an average worker is able to produce 10 units per day. The worker who is able to produce 12 units with the same machinery, tools, etc. and who gets $48 does not work more productively but more intensively and therefore demands higher reproduction costs. If new and more productive machinery suddenly made it possible for the average laborer to produce 20 units instead of 10, this would not result in a twofold increase of the day's wages. This thought is absurd under capitalist conditions of production. What would happen is that the peace rate would be reduced twofold. The wages are not the price for the result of the labor, but the price for the labor power. Engels writes in a letter to Lafargue, in what respect the wage worker gains an advantage in seeing his productivity increase, when the product of that productivity does not belong to him and when his wage is not determined by the productivity of the machine. Improvements in productivity are a result of improved technology of the capitalist production apparatus. A gain which is a result of improvements in productivity goes to the capitalist as profit, perhaps surplus profit, for a short period. A profit in which the laborer has no claim to share under capitalist conditions of production. The value and payment of the labor power do not depend on whether the laborer operates an expensive, highly productive plant or a screwdriver. No matter how big the difference in productivity is, it cannot be a result of the labor power in itself. In the case of an equal amount of used labor power, i.e. an equal wear of muscles and nerves and equal education and qualifications, an unequal result can only be explained by other factors, i.e. the quality of the means of production which is paid through profit. The assertion that the wages of agricultural workers are determined by the fertility of the soil and the wages of the industrial workers by the size and quality of the machinery is not only absurd, but has nothing to do with reality. In a capitalist society, the product of the soil or of the machinery belongs to the landowner or the industrial capitalist. Only in the case of independent producers, who own their land and tools, is there a connection between the productivity and the wages of the labor. The productivity of the laborer's work does not influence his wages. However, Marx believes that an increased productivity in the sectors which are included in the determination of the value of the labor power may have an influence in a downward direction. But if we assume it to be in an upward direction, it is difficult to understand why the working class in the third world does not benefit from the productivity increases to the same extent. One could not see why the same quantity of labor of the same qualification incorporating the same learning and training should be paid 10 times more or less according to whether it is supplied some miles on this or the other side of the American-Mexican border and according to whether the name of the vendor is John or Fernandez. 
Of all monopolies, this one, grounded on a passport or a birth certificate, seems to me the most unethical. The commodities which represent the reproduction costs of the working class do more or less cost the same all over the wood. Generally speaking, the costs of maintaining a living standard as a Danish worker are the same in Denmark, Tanzania, Brazil, or Hong Kong. The price for one kilo of wheat, one kilo of meat, one watch, or a transistor radio varies by 10, 20, or 50 percent from country to country. However, the wages are 5, 10, 20, or 50 times higher in the imperialist countries. If there were a connection between productivity and wages in an enterprise, it would mean that the laborer and the capitalist would find it in their common interest to improve productivity. The capitalist would do better in the competition and the laborer would obtain a wage increase. Marx attacked this point of view. The capitalist does not buy the labor but the labor power. The labor power is not paid according to the result of the labor. A surplus arising from a productivity increase belongs to the capitalist. Historically, the connection between productivity increases and wages has not been to the laborer's advantage. This is one of Marx's conclusions. He dealt very thoroughly with the relation between the development of the productive forces, the productivity increase, and the effect of it on the standard of living of the working class at his time. He describes how the accumulation of capital, the expansion of productive forces, and the productivity increase create the industrial reserve army, decrease the wages, and decrease the standard of living. The greater the social wealth, the functioning capital, the extent and energy of its growth, and, therefore, also the absolute mass of the proletariat and the productiveness of its labor, the greater is the industrial reserve army. The same causes which develop the expansive power of capital develop also the labor power at its disposal. The more extensive. The industrial reserve army, the greater is the official pauperism. This is the absolute general law of capitalist accumulation. In the same connection, Marx gives some concrete examples of this. During the period 1846-66, in which the productive forces advanced considerably in Britain, the standard of living decreased. Thus, according to Marx, there is no internal, regular connection between development of productivity and the standard of living which create wage increases. Actually, the considerable increase in productivity which took plane from the breakthrough of industrial capitalism at the end of the 18th century did not at all mean wage increases or improved standard of living for the working class. The first period 1790 to 1845 meant a direct decrease in the standard of living. Not until the abolition of the Corn Laws in 1846 did the working class obtain its earlier standard of living. The incipient wage increases in the 1870s were not based on productivity increases either, but were a result of the formation of a new economic world order imperialism. We conclude that the alleged economic connection between productivity increases and wage increases is wrong. What determines the wages is the class struggle and the possibilities of wage variation which the international position of the national economies can offer. The use value of labor power to the capitalist, the commodity labor power has one quality which is different from the qualities of all other commodities. It can be used for the production of commodities, the value of which is higher than the value of the components used in the production. In order to use the labor power, the capitalist must possess the means of production. The Circulation of Capital 
the capitalist invests partly in buildings, machinery, raw material, etc., in short, the production apparatus. This part of the capital is called constant capital because it does not differ in value during the accumulation. Partly the capitalist invests in labor power. This part of the capital is called variable capital because it forms the basis of the creation of new value in the production. Thus the commodities which the capitalist acquires by investments are divided into two main parts which both are equally vital, variable capital and constant capital. The circulation of capital consists of a production of and a trade in commodities. These two aspects of the circulation are interdependent, no production without trade, and no trade without production. The first stage in the circulation of industrial capital is the trade in commodities, when the capitalist buys labor power and the means of production. The next stage, the production which is the basis of the increase in value, is the consumption of the purchased commodities. This is the production of commodities which the capitalist assumes that he can sell at a higher price than the amount of the original investment. The value of the labor power and the value created by the laborer during the working process are two different quantities. The created value, the increase in value, consists of the value which exceeds the value of the labor power. Or in other words, the value which exceeds the time when the laborer has performed a piece of work corresponding to the work necessary to produce the commodities which the laborer buys for his wages. Only the living labor, labor power, can be the source of created value. The means of production, which the capitalist bought to start his production, change their shape, for example from leather to shoes, but their value does not change. They maintain their value, which is transferred to the finished commodities to the same extent as the means of production are used during the production. The following stage is again in the trade in commodities where the appropriation of the value takes place. In order to make it possible for the capitalist to secure all of the created value, it is important that the finished commodities can be sold at their value. This means the total capital outlay for variable and constant capital plus the surplus value. If he succeeds, the capitalist has increased the original capital by the surplus value. It can be used productively, i.e. for new, expanded circulation, or unproductively, for consumption. The total circulation of capital appears as follows, capital to constant capital, means of production, and variable capital, labor power, to production, to commodity, to commodity exchange, buying and selling, to increased capital, to capital, etc. Thus the circulation of capital, the course of capitalist accumulation, consists of a production where the material goods are created, and of a trade in commodities where the commodities are distributed and appropriated by the classes. These two elements form a whole. Therefore, a correct understanding of capitalist accumulation is only possible if all its elements are analyzed, their connection and mutual influence. Surplus Value the surplus value is the value created by the laborer exceeding the value of his own labor power. Theoretically, the working day in a capitalist enterprise can be divided into two parts, the necessary labor time when the laborer reproduces the value of his own labor power and the surplus labor time when the surplus value is created. The rate of surplus value. The rate of surplus value is the ratio of surplus labor to the necessary labor. Expressed in terms of value, it is the ratio of the value of labor power to the surplus value or the ratio of variable capital to surplus value. The rate of surplus value is equal to surplus value over variable capital.
Thus the rate of surplus value reflects the rate of exploitation of the labor power. The constant capital does not influence the value which is created. Whether it forms a large or a small part of the production does not influence the rate of surplus value. Within the frontiers of a country, there is a tendency towards an equalization of the rate of surplus value in the various spheres of production caused by the movements of the labor power, which will seek employment where the rate of exploitation is lowest. Marx writes, this, the equalization of the rate of exploitation, would assume competition among laborers and equalization through their continual migration from one sphere of production to another. Marx meant that this tendency to equalization made itself felt in the developed capitalist countries. We see at a glance that, in our capitalist society, a given portion of human labor is, in accordance with the varying demand, at one time supplied in the form of tailoring, at another in the form of weaving. This change may possibly not take place without friction, but take place it must. Cost price. The individual capitalist is not interested in surplus value and the rate of surplus value. He is not interested in knowing how much surplus value he forces from the laborer, but he is interested in how much profit the total amount of invested capital yields. Therefore, what actually interests the capitalist is the production costs of the finished commodities, their cost price. The value of every commodity produced in the capitalist way is represented in the formula V equals C plus V plus S. If we subtract surplus values from this value of the product, there remains a bare equivalent or a substitute value in goods for the capital value C plus V expended in the elements of production. This portion of the value of the commodity, which replaces the price of the consumed means of production and labor power, only replaces what the commodity costs the capitalist himself. For him it, therefore, represents the cost price of the commodity. How this cost price is distributed between constant and variable capital does not interest the capitalist. To him the profit is the yield of the aggregate capital. In its assumed capacity of offspring of the aggregate advanced capital, surplus value takes the converted form of profit. The rate of profit. The ratio of the surplus value to the aggregate advanced capital is defined as the rate of profit. The rate of profit is equal to surplus value over aggregate capital. Theoretically, the rate of profit of the individual capitalist depends therefore partly on the rate of surplus value and partly on the ratio of the constant capital to the variable capital. An increase or fall in the rate of surplus value results in a similar tendency for the rate of profit. The proportion of constant to variable capital is also defined as the organic composition of capital. This proportion of values is based on the technical composition of labor power and means of production, respectively, in the given line of industry. Capital has a low organic composition if the variable capital forms a large part of the aggregate capital. Conversely, capital has a high organic composition if the constant capital forms a large part. In the following example, in which the same rate of surplus value and the same turnover time are used, it is shown how the organic composition of capital affects the rate of profit. The higher the organic composition, the lower the rate of profit, and the lower the organic composition, the higher the rate of profit. The creation of an average rate of profit between the branches of production. From Table 3.1 it can be seen how equally big capitals with different organic composition obtain different surplus values, which theoretically result in very different rates of profit from equally big capitals. However, this tendency cannot be seen in reality. If it could be seen, 
it would mean that the capital would flow to the branches of production with a low organic composition where the variable capital is a comparatively large amount of the aggregate capital and away from branches of production with a high organic composition where the constant capital constitutes a comparatively large part. However, this is not the case. The capital does not particularly seat branches of production with a low organic composition. We know from the real world that substantial differences in the average rates of profit for the various lines of industry do not exist apart from transitory, accidental differences which equalize each other in the long term. They cannot exist without abolishing the capitalist system. Therefore, the question is how and why this equalization takes place. The average rate of profit is formed by the capitalist's continuous search for higher rates of profit. If a heavy demand for the commodities of a certain line of industry arises, the price for these commodities will increase and consequently the rate of profit within that sector will increase. This will result in capital flowing to that sector to obtain a share of the higher rate of profit. This leads to an increased production of the commodities of the sector which again leads to a saturation of the social wants, perhaps to overproduction, and thus to a fall in prices which means a lower rate of profit and consequently a flight of capital from the sector. Thus the difference in the rates of profit from one line of industry to the other is the basis of continuous capital movements and consequently of a tendency towards an equalization of the rates of profit. Thus the competition between the capitals tends towards equalizing the rates of profit of the various lines of industry to an average rate of profit so that equally big capitals yield equally big profits, no matter where the investment is made and no matter how the capital is distributed between constant and variable capital. Then the average profit can be defined as the profit which, according to the general rate of profit, goes to a capital of a given size no matter how the organic composition is. This means that the original commodity values are turned into prices of production. The price of production of a commodity is equal to its cost price plus the share of the annual average profit of the aggregate capital invested, not merely consumed, in its production, in accordance with the conditions of turnover. In other words, price of production equals cost price plus the total used capital X average rate of profit. The price of production must not be confused with the market price. It is a coincidence if they are identical. During the historical period of simple commodity production, the commodity prices fluctuated around the commodity value. But under developed capitalism, the price of production forms the center of the fluctuation for the current market prices. Thus the price of production for the individual commodity is not the same as the value of the individual commodity. But the total sum of the prices of production will equal the sum of the commodity values, just as the sum of the profits will equal the total surplus value. Let us see how the formation of an average rate of profit influences Table 3.1. In Table 3.2, each aggregate capital is still 100, the rate of surplus value is constant, 100%. We assume that the whole capital turns over in one circulation. The new thing in Table 3.2 is the formation of the average rate of profit, 20% plus 30% plus 40% plus 15% plus 5% divided by 5 equals 22%. Taken together, the commodities are sold at 2 plus 7 plus 17 is equal to 26 above, and 8 plus 18 is equal to 26 below their value, so that the deviations of price from value balance out one another through the uniform distribution of surplus value. 
or through addition of the average profit of 22 per 100 units of advanced capital to the respective cost prices of the commodities I to V. The prices obtained as the average of the various rates of profit in the different spheres of production, added to the cost prices of the different spheres of production, constitute the prices of production. They have as their prerequisite the existence of a general rate of profit, and this again presupposes that the rates of profit in every individual sphere of production taken by itself have previously been reduced to just as many average rates. These particular rates of profit equals SC in every sphere of production and must be deduced out of the values of the commodities. Without such deduction, the general rate of profit, and consequently the price of production of commodities, remains a vague and senseless conception. Hence, the price of production of a commodity is equal to its cost price plus the profit, allotted to it in percent, in accordance with the general rate of profit, or, in other words, to its cost price plus the average profit. As can be seen from the table, the organic composition of the various capitals varies widely. This means that each of them employs very different quantities of human labor. Thus the basis of different quantities of surplus value within the various lines of production is formed. However, the surplus value does not necessarily fall to the line of production where it was created. By means of the equalization of the rate of profit there is a transfer of value from one line of production, which is below average, as to organic composition, to the lines of production which are above. This transfer of value is of no interest to the capitalists. They do not observe it. The individual capitalist does not care how high the rate of surplus value is in the enterprise or line of production in question. The capitalist is interested in the profit, and because of the equalization of the rate of profit, it is evenly distributed between all capitals, no matter how the organic composition is. This transfer of value is called unequal exchange by some economists. However, there is nothing unequal about this transfer, as it is a condition of the actual function of capitalism. This equalization of the rate of profit makes it profitable for the capitalist continuously to improve his production apparatus, indeed it forces him to do so in order to survive the competition. Thus capitalism gets the dynamics, the capability to improve the productive forces. If we imagine that the commodities were sold at their value instead of at a price which fluctuates around the price of production, it would lead to a stop in investments, in mechanization, and in productions of a highly organic composition. Whereas labor-intensive productions with much variable capital and consequently with much surplus value would gain ground. Chemical industries would die out and wood carving would flourish. The conditions for an equalization of the rate of profit nationally. Marx describes these in Capital. Now, if the commodities are sold at their values, then, as we have shown, very different rates of profit arise in the various spheres of production depending on the different organic composition of the masses of capital invested in them. But capital withdraws from a sphere with a low rate of profit and invades others, which yield a higher profit. Through this incessant outflow and influx, or, briefly, through its distribution among the various spheres, which depends on how the rate of profit falls here and rises there, it creates such a ratio of supply to demand that the average profit in the various spheres of production becomes the same, and values are, therefore, converted into prices of production. Capital succeeds in this equalization, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the extent of capitalist development in the given nation. 
i.e., on the extent the conditions in the country in question are adapted for the capitalist mode of production. The incessant equilibration of constant divergences is accomplished so much more quickly, one, the more mobile the capital, i.e., the more easily it can be shifted from one sphere and from one place to another, two, the more quickly labor power can be transferred from one sphere to another and from one production locality to another. The first condition implies complete freedom of trade within the society and the removal of all monopolies with the exception of the natural ones, those, that is, which naturally arise out of the capitalist mode of production, i.e., the capitalist monopoly of capital and the labor monopoly of labor power. The second condition implies the abolition of all laws preventing the laborers from transferring from one sphere of production to another and from one local center of production to another, indifference of the laborer to the nature of his labor. The greatest possible reduction of labor in all spheres of production to simple labor, the elimination of all vocational prejudices among laborers, and last but not least, a subjugation of the laborer to the capitalist mode of production. Summary Thus, under developed capitalism, there is sufficient mobility of the labor force within the frontiers of the individual country for a tendency towards an equalization of the rate of surplus value. Similarly, there is sufficient mobility of capital for a tendency towards an equalization of the rate of profit. This results in the fact that the exchange relationship between the commodities, their market price, no longer fluctuates around the value but around the price of production. Now the question is, how is it internationally? Is the mobility of the labor force sufficient for an equalization of the rate of surplus value, i.e. of the rate of exploitation? Is the mobility of the capital between the countries sufficient for an equalization of the rate of profit and thus for the creation of prices of production? In short, the question is, how does the capitalist world market function? The world market. As far as the rate of surplus value is concerned, we feel absolutely convinced that no equalization has taken place internationally. The mobility of the labor force between the countries has not been sufficient to produce anything at all like a tendency towards this. The development has been the opposite. The industrial and parliamentary struggle, which was carried on by the working class in the imperialist countries at the end of the last century, led to an increasing wage level on the basis of the exploitation of the rest of the countries in the world. On the other hand, this exploitation of the poor countries meant that they had no possibility of a similar development. On the contrary, during the 20th century, this situation resulted in an increasing disparity in wage levels between the developed and the underdeveloped countries, or, in other words, in a high rate of surplus value in the poor countries and in a lower in the rich countries. As far as the rate of profit is concerned, we believe that the international mobility of capital, particularly after the Second World War and the decolonization, has been sufficient to produce a tendency towards equalization, and thus sufficient for the determination of prices of production at an international level. Thus the prerequisites for the determination of the prices on the world market are, 1. Wages. Unequal payment of labor power. Internationally, the class struggle has been fought on an unequal economic basis which has resulted in the wage level and consequently the rate of surplus value varying enormously between the imperialist countries and the exploited countries. 2. Profit. Equal payment of the capital. The mobility of capital is sufficient to produce a tendency towards an international equalization of the rate of profit. Unequal exchange between countries. 
Let us see what these prerequisites lead to in Marx's tables of prices of production. We suppose two countries A and B. Firstly, we suppose that the rate of surplus value and the rate of profit in the two countries are equal. This means that the mobility of the labor force and the capital is sufficient for an equalization. The organic composition of the production in the countries A and B is the same, C and V is 100 in both countries. This has been done to make other things equal, to eliminate the possibility that a higher organic composition should be the cause of any transfers of value. This means that in this case value and price of production coincide. The equal organic composition in no way indicates that this is a question of a production of identical commodities, because then the wage increase in country A would mean that A's commodities would be outstripped by country B's lower prices. The characteristic feature of the trade between the imperialist countries and the exploited countries is namely that they exchange different commodities. Finally, we suppose that the entire capital turns over at the same speed in both countries. In Table 3.3, the rate of surplus value and the rate of profit between the two countries have been equalized. Thus, the exchange relationship between the two countries is equal. In Table 3.4, a 50% increase in wages has been introduced in Country A, resulting in a lower rate of surplus value, a lower degree of exploitation. This affects the exchange relationship between the two countries. Equal quantities of labor power are used in the two countries. It is only the price for the labor power which is not the same and, therefore, the value of the production in the two countries is the same. The rate of surplus value S is different in the two countries. But the rate of profit is the same. Because the price for labor power is different, we get different prices of production even though there is the same quantity of human labor and the same quantities of value in the two countries. Whereas the commodities in Table 3.3 were equally exchanged by 300 to 300, the wage increase of 50% in Table 3. 4, which is moderate compared to the real differences, results in an unequal exchange, 333.13 and 266.23 respectively. Country B is balked of 366.23 is equal to 33.13 as compared to equal exchange. And country A gains 3313 minus 300 is equal to 3313. In the case of a complete exchange of commodities between country A and country B, country A would gain 3313 plus 3313 is equal to 6623. At the same time, the wage increase in country A means that the overall average rate of profit falls from 50% to 3313%. In this way, value is transferred from countries with a low wage level to countries with a high wage level. Through the international commodity and capital markets, the rich imperialist countries benefit from trade with the poor countries by means of unequal exchange. The colonial form of imperialism at the end of the 19th century gave rise both to higher wages in the developed countries and to extra profits. But the mobility of capital, which also was a result of imperialism, tended soon to equalize the differences in the rates of profit between the investments in the colonies and in the imperialist countries. The working classes of the imperialist countries succeeded through parliamentary and industrial struggles not only in maintaining but also in increasing the comparatively high wage level they had obtained compared to that of the proletariat in the exploited countries. 
the efficient industrial struggle of the American and West European working classes and the simultaneous brutal suppression of the same political and industrial struggle in the third world has resulted in differences in wages of 10 to 20 times. The increasing international mobility of capital, particularly after the Second World War, has resulted in a tendency towards an equalization of the rate of profit. In general, capital invested in the Third World does not yield higher profits than capital invested in the imperialist countries. Therefore, the international differences in wages are felt in the prices. Commodities from the third world are cheaper, and when the two groups of countries exchange commodities, value is transferred from the poor exploited countries to the rich imperialist countries. On Exploitation Between Countries In the last analysis, exploitation is an appropriation of other people's labor. This is true whether it is one person's exploitation of another person or one country's exploitation of another. The products of human labor are commodities or services and, therefore, the appropriation of human labor is the appropriation of these commodities and services. Consequently, all exploitation between countries is ultimately based on an unequal exchange of commodities and services. This may either be reflected by a deficit in the balance of trade, which means that the imperialist country imports more commodities than it exports according to current world market prices, or the inequality may be found in the actual price formation. We believe the latter to be correct. Emmanuel says, to simplify still further, one country can only gain something at the expense of another by taking more goods than it provides or by buying the goods it obtains too cheaply and selling those it provides at too high a price. During a long period, and generally speaking, the imports of the third world from the imperialist countries exceed their exports measured in world market prices. The countries of the third world have to take loans continuously to cover this import surplus. Thus the transfer of value from the third world is not based on an export surplus to the rich countries measured in world market prices. The transfer of value takes place on the basis of an inequality of market prices as one of the price determining elements contains an inequality namely the wages. The international mobility of capital and the consequential tendency towards an equalization of the rate of profit prevents the low wages in the poor countries from resulting in generally higher rates of profit of capitals invested in these countries. The national and international competition between capitalists means that the low wages do not result in higher profits but in lower prices. The low wages lead to low prices and thus the consumers benefit from this whether they are capitalists or wage laborers. The consumers are first and foremost the population of the imperialist countries. Table 3.5 shows how the imperialist countries account for around 3-4 of the exports of the poor countries. On Exploitation Capitalist exploitation is not exclusively and in isolation connected to production or to the concrete relationship between capital and labor. Under developed capitalism, the exploitation must be seen in relation to the circulation of capital as a whole, i.e. both in relation to production and to the trade in commodities. Under developed capitalism, value is transferred from undertakings of low productivity to undertakings of high productivity within one line of industry. Value is transferred from lines of industry with a low organic composition to lines with a high organic composition. Finance and trade capital can appropriate value without even being directly attached to the productive sphere. Value is transferred from countries with a low wage level to countries with a high wage level. 
All these transfers of value conditions of exploitation can only be understood if the capitalist circulation is considered as a whole and not only on the basis of production. The basis of the surplus value of the surplus labor is created in production, the appropriation and distribution of the surplus value take place in the trade in commodities. The fact that, technically, a person takes part in production as a wage laborer does not necessarily mean that he or she is exploited and that he or she cannot exploit other people. Wage labor is a sine qua non of capitalist exploitation, but it is not enough. The exploitation depends on the actual ratio between the necessary labor, the wages, and the surplus labor, the surplus value. Thus, if you can secure more value for your wages than you have created, you are not being exploited, but you are exploiting. In principle, there is nothing new about this. In Grundris, PP 434-43, Marx deals with the fact that through the determination of prices of production and a national average rate of profit, Laborers could benefit from other laborers' products being sold below their value to the extent that these products were part of their consumption. However, when he wrote Grundris in 1857-8, Marx did not regard this as something important. He writes, as regards the other workers, the case is entirely the same. They gain from the depreciated commodity only in relation, one, as they consume it, two, relative to the size of their wage, which is determined by necessary labor. If the depreciated commodity were, e.g. grain, one of the staffs of life, then first its producer, the farmer, and following him all other capitalists, would make the discovery that the worker's necessary wage is no longer the necessary wage, but stands above its level, hence it is brought down. Engels did not doubt the possibility of the British proletariat exploiting the colonial proletariat. The English proletariat is actually becoming more and more bourgeois, so that this most bourgeois of all nations is apparently aiming ultimately at the possession of a bourgeois aristocracy and a bourgeois proletariat alongside the bourgeoisie. For a nation which exploits the whole world this is of course to a certain extent justifiable. And in a letter to Kautsky he wrote, You ask me what the English workers think about colonial policy. Well, exactly the same as they think about politics in general, the same as the bourgeois think. There is no workers' party here, you see, there are only conservatives and liberal radicals, and the workers gaily share the feast of England's monopoly of the world market and the colonies. Thus the fact that wages of a certain size can contain more value than the labor performed in order to get the wages is not something new. It is a question of quantity whether it applies in the case of a managing director with an annual salary of $100,000 or in the case of an assistant manager with a salary of $25,000 or if it already applies to the skilled worker earning $15,000. It is a question of calculations, not of principles. South Africa, a concrete example. A working class, labor aristocracy, may very well share in the exploitation of a proletariat. In order to illustrate this we shall look at a concrete example, the participation of the white working class in the exploitation of the black proletariat in South Africa. In his article The White Working Class in South Africa, Robert Davis describes the basis of the high standard of living and racist ideology of this class which can be explained by its participation in the economic exploitation of the black working class in South Africa. Robert Davis writes, For it is clear that a section of the labor force will tend to become most fully tied to the bourgeoisie when it benefits from the extraction of surplus value, 
In other words, when it participates in the exploitation of the majority of the working class. Tables 2 and 3 below represents an attempt to show that it is true of the white mining, industrial, and construction workers in South Africa. From Table 2, it is clear that the average white mining wage, and even the basic white rate, have been, for the whole period in question, consistently above what we have called the average allowable wage with no surplus content, very roughly an indication of the average wage each worker would receive if there were no exploitation. Since the average allowable wage with no surplus content represents an average free of employer's exploitation, roughly speaking, any group of workers who receives an average wage above this level trust either be contributing more labor power than the average, or else be receiving this higher wage at the expense of fellow workers through some workplace or national political arrangement. That the first possibility does not apply to white mine workers is borne out by the following facts. In the gold mines, the ratio of white wages to black wages in 1911 was 11.7 to 1, while by 1966 the gap had increased to 17.6 to 1. But between 1920 and 1965, the productivity of black gold miners rose from an annual rate of 222 tons of ore mined per man to 417 tons, per man an increase of 188%. The productivity of the whole labor force had meanwhile increased from an annual rate of 39 fine oz of gold per man to 51 ounces per man over the same period. This represents an increase of 157%. The black increase in productivity was therefore above the total average increase in productivity, and we therefore also conclude that the average white miner's increase in productivity must have been rather less than that of his black colleague. In other words, whilst black miners had increased their relative contribution of labor value, their relative income position had declined. So, indeed, did their real income, for the average black miner received less in real terms in 1966 than in 1911. The reverse, of course, applies to the white miner. On productivity grounds, therefore, the differential should have become smaller not larger. Increased productivity thus cannot account for the white miners higher than the allowable wage with no surplus content. Of course, the explanation for this state of affairs is political. Black wages are kept low by the laws against effective political and trade union organization, by the color bar, and by the migratory labor system, all official instruments of state policy. Black workers are therefore victims of a super-exploitation, which has tended to increase rather than to diminish. Since the average white wage is a significant amount above the surplus free wage, and since it is not based on higher productivity, the inescapable conclusion is that the white mine workers benefit from surplus value created by blacks. In other words, they indirectly share in the exploitation of blacks via their political support for the state and the economic privileges they receive from it in return. If we look at similar figures for industry and construction, we see the same pattern repeated for fundamentally the same reasons. In industry and construction, as well as in mining, the white worker has visibly benefited from political privilege, and if the same analysis were applied to other sectors of the economy, doubtless the same trend would appear. What can then be said, without fear of contradiction, is that since the white wage is high by virtue of political privilege, if this privilege were to disappear, the white wage would be reduced. This would be so in any type of society that replaced it, neocolonial, independent, if such thing is possible, native capitalist or socialist. 
In a socialist society, unless exceptionally high productivity were proven, not, as we have seen, true of the South African white worker, a worker's income would tend to be close to the allowable wage with no surplus content. This income would, of course, consist partly of collectively consumed items and there would be some contribution for new investments. The average white South African worker would therefore stand to lose at least one-third to two-thirds of his current income by the introduction of a socialist society and must on economic grounds therefore be judged likely. To oppose either phase of the two-stage freedom struggle as envisaged by classical Stalinist strategy. Global Inequality Emmanuel has made a similar but global calculation. In 1973, the average annual wage in the USA amounted to around 10,500 US dollars. The population of the entire capitalist world at that time was about 2,600,000,000, and there was a little over a billion economically active. To pay all these economically active people on an American scale would require close to 11,000 billions US dollar. However, the total national income of these countries in 1973 amounted to only $2,700 billion. This means that even if the entire capitalist class was expropriated, that is if all profits were paid out as wages, and even if no money at all were put aside for investments and maintenance, each laborer could only get an average pay of $2,500, which is no more than a quarter of the average American wages. In the same article Emmanuel continues, this means that the United States can be the United States and Sweden can be Sweden only because others, that is the two billion inhabitants of the third world, are not. This also means that every material equalization from the top down is excluded. If by some miracle, a socialist and fraternal system, regardless of its type or model, were introduced tomorrow morning the world over, and if it wanted to integrate, to homogenize mankind by equalizing living standards, then to do this it would not only have to expropriate the capitalists of the entire world, but also dispossess large sections of the working class of the industrialized countries of the amount of surplus value these sections appropriate today. It seems this is reason enough for these working classes not to desire this socialist and fraternal system and to express their opposition by either openly integrating into the existing system, as in the United States of America or the Federal Republic of Germany, or by advocating national paths to socialism, as in France or Italy. Thus, under developed capitalism, imperialism, the appropriation of other people's abstract labor does not only take place in the relationship between capitalists and laborers. The high wage level of the population as a whole in the rich countries means that also the laborers are able to appropriate the surplus value created in the poor countries so that the laborers are able to appropriate more value than they create themselves. This is a characteristic of the position of the working class in Eastern Europe and North America today.